Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hi, Mark. We're going to go live here. They're going to do a quick commercial. Um, in fact, I think we're on the air. So um, I'm going to go ahead and hey, roll no, in. Hey, Skype. Okay, we're we're good. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you got through on the phone here. So I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> yeah, um, there was no Skype sign on my uh, computer, but now there is one. Now there is one. Okay. Well, I am I am so sorry about that. Do you want to call back in, and I can do the introduction? By yeah. Skype? Do you mean by phone or by Skype? Well, you can try going in by the Skype button, and then I'll go ahead and do the introduction here because we're we're live as we're speaking right now. So it's up to you okay. if you want to call in or not. So yeah, if you want to go ahead and for an hour, I guess. Okay, why don't you go ahead and hang up? Try calling in by Skype, and we'll grab you there, and then I'll go ahead and do the introduction, and then I'll pull you back into the show. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. We're having a little technical difficulty today. That happens every now and then. Um, I'm Lori LeBay, your host, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. And my passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss. And that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with memory loss. For those of you that are new to the show, I just want to give you a little brief um, background as to the show and why we exist um, and so forth. Basically, our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, um, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Rick Phelps is our channel expert who has Alzheimer's, and I'm not sure if he will be able to make the show today or not. But if he is, I will definitely pull him in. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook. And he, um, if you're not familiar with Memory People, I highly recommend that you check it out. All you have to do is put Memory People in the search bar um, when you're on Facebook. And... um, the the group will show up. It's a closed group, but it's a great place to connect with others dealing with memory loss, Um, both um, people who have the disease, uh, professional and family caregivers, and then advocates just at large. It's just a really nice um, group that is connected worldwide. On our homepage, you'll find um, links for both myself and Rick. So, you you know, if you have any questions for us, please feel free um, to go ahead and um, and contact us. We would love to hear from you. During the show today, you can uh, communicate with us either via the chat box if you're listening um, via your computer. Um, just go ahead and type in a question or a comment. The other thing that you can do is call in live, and um, the number to do that is 714-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. And um, when we when we go ahead and uh, do that. You can push one and you'll get into my queue and we will um, be able to talk to you from there. So um, <clears throat> with no further ado here, I'm going to introduce um, our um, our guest and we're still having some trouble getting Mark connected here it looks like, um, but we'll, we'll get him on the line here yet. Um, 
Our guest, our first guest today is Mark Wartman. And Mark was born in the Netherlands. He studied law and art, and he was an entrepreneur in um, retail for 15 years. He's a member of the Parliament of the Providence of um, Yetrick in Netherlands, and he became the executive director of Alzheimer's Netherlands in uh, 2000. And then from 2002 to 2005, he chaired the Dutch Fundraising Association, and he continues um, to, let's see, I'm just seeing, it looks like Mark is coming on the line here, so um, where he continues um, to work um, with us and um, with the Dutch Fundraising Association, and um, he is the Vice President of the European Fundraising Association. Um, Mark um, has been a speaker at many international conferences on fundraising, and he, he works on campaigning, public policy, ethical issues, and in 2006, he joined Alzheimer's Disease International as the executive director. His main responsibilities are um, governing that organization along with managing staff, external relations, public policy, and annual conference, um, the annual conference in fundraising. Just a little bit about Alzheimer's Disease International. ADI is an international federation of 76 um, organizations around the world, all which are affiliated with the World Health Organization, and each member is the Alzheimer's Association in their country who support people with dementia and their families. ADI's vision is to improve the quality of life for people with dementia and their families throughout the world. And so, Mark, are you with us? I think so, yes. Okay. So I can hear you. I can hear you. Let's just hope everybody else can. So um, I'm doing this kind of funky um, in terms of how, I, how I'm doing this. I'm actually holding my phone up next to, <laughs> next to my computer. So um, to, to go ahead and start with, I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth questions here because our connection is a little bit difficult. Um, but can you just give us a little bit of background about yourself? I kind of gave a, a brief intro, but you know, how how did you get connected personally with Alzheimer's disease? What what became your passion in this mode? Well, it's a little bit of a long story. I. Uh... 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I was uh, looking for a new job, and I knew someone who was in the board of Alzheimer's Netherlands, and she said, oh, our director is leaving, why don't you apply for the job? So that happened, and then I was appointed, and I stayed there for seven years, and by that time, there was a position, a vacancy at uh, Alzheimer's Disease International, and they first... Um, announced it through the members of ADI, so that's how I saw it, and then I applied for the job again, and, uh, and they took me. And like many other people, I have some experience with Alzheimer's in my family, so I, I had it by that time, and I still have uh, an aunt with uh, severe Alzheimer's. And my grandmother-in-law died with Alzheimer's, so I, but I had never been myself to the main caregiver in the family. Okay, great. Well, that gives us a little little more background about you, so that's extremely helpful. 
Um, can you tell us, you know, I, I didn't know anything about ADI just until um, recently, about a year ago. How long have they been in existence? Uh, ADI was created in 1984. Uh, it was actually one of the founders of the Alzheimer's Association, Jerry Stone, who uh, was looking into um, connect with other countries and try to find out how far they were. And then he found out that they didn't know nothing at all like the USA by that time. So they had a meeting in Washington in 1984 with the USA, Canada, UK, Australia, and someone from Belgium, and decided to uh, to create an organization. And in the first years, it was simultaneous um, managed by the US Alzheimer's Association and the Canadian. So one year, one of them took the secretariat, and then the other year, the other one. And from 1996 on, there was an office in London with such staff. Wow, I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that it was. It's been around that long, and I had not a clue. I'm kind of embarrassed um, that I didn't know. But I'm so I'm so glad that I found out now. Uh, yeah. That's wonderful. So you guys have grown a lot. I mean, you have how many how many different organizations? Was it seven? But it's of course mainly, and in, certainly in the beginning, it was mainly an organization of organizations. So it was not so well known to the public. Only in the last four or five years we have published a number of reports and we all came out into the public and into the media. So we haven't raised our profile so much in the first 20 years. And so you're going to change all that, huh? <laughs> Although in some smaller countries, people know very well because the uh, organization would not exist without our support. That's very different from the U.S. The U.S. Alzheimer's Association is so big with its 72 chapters throughout the country. That's an organization like ADI with a lot of work happening on the national level and on the state level. Okay. Well, can you tell us, you know, what what is your mission? What's what what are you looking at doing in this coming year? Well, um, what we want to achieve is a better quality of life for people with dementia and their families throughout the world. And the main objectives that we have in our strategic plan for these years are to raise awareness about the disease worldwide to uh, support and strengthen our member associations, especially those in developing countries, and finally to advocate on behalf of the people with the disease and their families to the international organizations like UN, World Health Organization, and other international bodies. Can you tell our listeners what is the difference between your organization and others? Um, I mean, it's, you've got to have um, some difficulties just because of dealing with everybody around the world and everyone's different opinions and needs. What What are some of the differences? And then can you tell us also some of the similarities that you see within? I mean, are there Alzheimer organizations or organizations in different areas? Um, I guess I guess I'm asking two questions. So let's start out with one. Let's talk about your organization as a whole, and you know how you pull people together, and maybe what their different needs are throughout the world, um, if there are any. Um, why don't we start? Why don't we start there? Well, 
the parts of the world where there are more elderly people. So in the United States and Canada, Western Europe and Japan, um, there's more information now through the media. There are people who are writing books about it because they have the disease or family member has a disease or had it. Um, there are many other parts of the world where that's still not the case. So in, in some African countries, people really don't understand the disease. I think that the people with dementia are mad or that they have spirits in their minds or something like that. It still exists. I heard recently I heard someone from the Ministry of Health in Togo in Africa where that was still the case. So you have to fight these the way this disease is, is framed in its society from the beginning. But having said that, even in the countries where there is a lot of awareness, still a lot of people face difficulties in getting access to the health system, getting a good diagnosis, which is not happening in many countries. Even in the United States, less than half of the people with the disease are diagnosed. The same here in England. So there are a lot of barriers that we have to to break, and that's that's something that unites all the Alzheimer's associations worldwide. If we come together at any new conference, it's it's good to share this experience and to know that you're not the only one struggling, but that others are having the same. And some people are very good in finding solutions and breaking it open. I think. Oh, I'm sorry. they they started to work with with buses, so they have a bus. And they call it the Alzheimer bus or the memory bus and go out in the street and park on, on squares and then open it for a couple of hours during the day. And they provide a lot of information to the public, which is a very good way to um, to make it more accepted, more normalize the disease. I think that's really interesting, um, the bus concept uh, in terms of raising awareness and things. I, I also love that you said that there was so many more similarities um, that you saw through, you know, from country to country because to me it's all about collaboration and not focusing as much on our differences but really the similarities and working together as a group. And, and you know, in my eyes, one of the biggest obstacles that we have to um, get over and help help population with is um, removing the fear of this disease and getting people to understand that you know this is something that's you know not going away in any any time soon um, and that we have to learn how to live with the disease um, both as family members and as a community at large and then the medical profession. Um, it's got to be very difficult for some of these small countries who I would imagine don't have much for access at all in terms of diagnosis or even the ability to, to you know, reach out for information. Um, because I know over here in the U.S., I mean, it's, even though it's still hidden and people don't like to talk about it, I mean, we still have a ton of resources, I think, compared to a lot. Um, and I see that just on the Internet um, over in Europe. That you guys just fascinate me with the progress you guys have made and um, the things that you're doing. Um, it, it's just very exciting um, to, to see all of the different information and to be able to connect. 
via the Internet, via the social media, I think has a huge impact in terms of, um, you know, how people can, can resource information. Do you guys do a lot with social media yourself? Um, well, we're only a small, small umbrella organization, so we don't have many resources. And we mainly try to connect our member associations. But we do, we do use the Internet a lot. So our website is uh, quite well organized, I think, um, with a lot of visitors, especially around special events such as World Alzheimer's Day. Um, we use Facebook and Twitter. Um, but many of our members do have, um, for instance, uh, online communities where people can post questions and talk to each other, even chat to each other. Sometimes from these uh, communities, they start meeting in person as well. And, and I, don't, I don't think anyone can oversee everything that's happening. There are so many, so many platforms. Um, and, and in every language, there are, there are internet pages where you can meet other people. And, and in some small countries, they have very active uh, Facebook pages. Countries like Europa, with only 100,000 population, they are very active on their Facebook homepage. Well, that's wonderful. I, and I think it's it's important for people to know that. Um, and again, this is my personal belief, and you, you can uh, not agree with it or not, but I believe it takes more than one voice with this. And when you're a caregiver or if you're a person with the disease, you know, um, like anybody else, our, our moods and our needs change all the time. And so I think it's important for people to check out all of the opportunities that are there because what might work for you one moment might not work for you the next moment. And there's so many resources on the Internet. I mean, even if you're just dabbling, you know, to get out there, um, it's amazing some of the connections people are making, um, just lifelong friends. I mean, I, I want to go to Europe so bad because I've connected with so many people over there because I've just, um, like I said, I've just been fascinated. Um, Norms McNamara, by the way, says to say hi um, to you. Uh, Norms is the one who introduced me to the Memory Cafe, and uh, he and David Light. And um, that has just been a thrill and a half for us over here um, to open up the, the Memory Cafe in Minnesota. Um, the, the members absolutely just love the concept, and it's just so simple and so engaging. But it just gives people a place to really be able to hang out, connect, and feel normal again. And um, we just sit around and laugh and just have a, have a wonderful, wonderful time. Now I know you are also working with um, with Dr. Richard Taylor and um, Laura Bromley, and they've got a section on your website. Can you tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the section that's called "I Can, I Will," and the purpose of this is that people, um, especially people with dementia, can post ideas and share it with others. And on on this website page, you find a number of uh, sort of library, so there are a number of places where you can click on with, with various topics and then post your idea and, and uh, read ideas that others have posted. And, and it's mainly about um, how can we 
can we enhance the situation? How can we improve the quality of life of people with dementia and Alzheimer's? And things that people have done uh, themselves that have been useful for them are posted over there. And it's really exciting to see that many people from all kinds of countries have, have used it so far. But we, we still need to, to spread the word more, so it's good to have the opportunity to talk about it here. Now, Mark, what is your website again? Why don't you just go ahead and give it a plug, and we'll plug it again towards the end um, so that people can get to you. Uh, well, our general website is, is alz.co.uk, and then you'll find a button on the homepage where you can click on I Can, I, can I Will. Okay. That will lead you to, uh, to this website page. Okay. Um, now, as far as your website, can you want to you want to tell other people what uh, other uh, opportunities and information you have um, that they can grab from your site? Well, one of the other important um, sources on our website is the, the fact that you can see you can find the contact details of all the associations worldwide. Some of these people develop Alzheimer's and 
happening so we get more and more people with Alzheimer's worldwide. And if we don't find solutions, then it's really going to be the, the biggest health problem in the future. In 2010, we did another research project to, you know, we knew the numbers to calculate the cost of the disease worldwide. And you can see from that report is that it's, uh, again, that it's an enormous amount, 604 billion U.S. dollars for the global cost of the disease, which is uh, broken down into medical costs and then social costs and the cost of informal care. And it's... Uh, no one knows how much of it's 600 billion, but you can say it's 1% of the global GDP, so 1% of the whole economy. Or you can compare it with the size of the country, and then it would be the 18th largest country in the world, with dementia, all the dementia. If the dementia costs were the cost of a country or the income of a country, then it would be the 18th economy. That's and just a not that solutions, so we looked at what are the benefits of diagnosing people and what interventions are available. And by reviewing a large number of studies, we found that there are interventions that are useful that people benefit from. So it makes sense to diagnose people with dementia. It makes sense to diagnose them early if possible because their the quality of life can improve from these interventions and also the quality of life from the caregiver. In one of the bad news is that worldwide only one out of four people are diagnosed with the disease, and three out of four don't get any diagnosis, and so they don't get access to treatment. And that really is, is a problem. We really do need to um, we really do need to get early diagnosis. Um, in the forefront and remove this fear so that people know. And, and plus, we need to have the medical professionals um, be aware of it. I know that even in the U.S., there's still a lot of, you know, general practitioners that, that don't really specialize or know um, in getting people referred out. And I imagine in the smaller countries where there's even less access, that makes it even more difficult um, in terms of, of getting diagnosis. So I think that that's extremely important. Now, you had mentioned that there were some non-medical um, things. Can you just give us some examples that can help improve quality of life for somebody? Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, the non-medical interventions may even be more effective than the medical, but at least the same. Um, so one of the very nice ones is that... Um, Physical ex exercise is, is beneficial, and even for people who still have the disease, but also in a, in a way of risk reduction. So if you don't have it yet, physical exercise can reduce your risk. And it doesn't mean that you have to do heavy sports, you know, any, any exercise from walking or on a regular basis is, is beneficial. And there's a lot of uh, scientific evidence for that. And it's easy to do. Uh, other kinds of interventions are what is called cognitive stimulation training, uh, which is a, a way to uh, stimulate the brain by uh, a program that looks at all kinds of different ways of using your brain. 
talking to other people, looking at films, making, doing games. And there are some researchers who have put programs together where all these aspects are touched on. And that keeps the brain more using itself and therefore uh, the, the decline of the, the brain is, is less than when you don't use these. Uh, Another example is, is musical therapy. I guess that's quite well known in USA as well. Music, using music has a positive impact on the brain. And another important one is a is a good uh, approach of supporting the caregiver. There is a very important study by Mary Mittelman of New York University who worked for 20 years on a caregiver support program. That's, that's just one of the examples. But um, she has done a lot of research during, uh, during the development of this program, and it shows that um, when caregivers are better supported, um, they have less problems in the process of caregiving. They get less depressed, and it also means that people don't need to go or have less nursing home submissions than when they don't use the program. I think, um, you know, one of the things you were talking about was the cognitive engagement. And to me, you know, for some people that don't understand, you know, all the definitions of what does that really mean, it's really quite simple. It's just um, basically social engagement, um, doing things maybe in a little different um, angle than what we used to. So am I getting a little feedback right now? Mark, are you hearing feedback? Okay, I was wondering if you were getting some. Let's see. Let me try. Is, is this better at all? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I've got you on Skype, and so when I do that, sometimes I I get some feedback, and right now we're getting, we seem to be getting that. Um, one of the things I was saying was, you know, for um, social engagement is just so important. A lot of times, people pull back with their individual, and it's really important for them to um, take part and actually, you know, continue to do the things they have, just start adapting them a little bit different and um, working, you know, with individuals. So if you still go to the grocery store, you know, if, if you're able to take them with, um, you might have to do your shopping a little bit different. You might have to park a little bit closer if if distance is a problem, um, those types of things. So it just it just can all really vary as far as that goes. Now, Mark, you had mentioned that you um when we had talked earlier that you guys have a, a are forging a, a new campaign in twenty twelve. Can you tell us a little bit about that campaign and what you guys have up your sleeve?
something that can be used everywhere in the world. So with a common symbol, with some common features, but also flexible enough to, to adapt it to local situation. So what we have done is uh, we've put a working group together with people from various parts of the world and more developed, less developed countries, and started to work on, uh, on an approach and find a few countries that want to pilot want to test the first phase. Um, that's all ongoing and there is a creative team is now looking at uh, putting together the festivals for the campaign and the message. And um, what we want to do with this campaign is, is it's quite ambitious, but in the end we want to change the face of the disease. So we don't want we want to keep that people with Alzheimer's and dementia can be more part of society, and that they can come out of the shadows, they can speak for themselves, and that everyone knows that it's the fact of life that you can have Alzheimer's, and that you don't feel ashamed for it. That's a, that's a difficult, that's still, a difficult disease, you can't change that, but you can live with it. And, um, organizations are very proprietary in terms of their fundraising 
And so, um, you know, everyone's kind of protective of their own little thing that they're doing. And so is that something that is causing any difficulty in terms of buy-in with your campaign, worried that, you know, if they give money to you guys, then they're not going to get it? Um, is that Has that come up at all? organizations campaigning for, for money, of course, and although I think it's in the U- U.S. it's more than anywhere else, although U.K. is also very busy with lots of um, charities, uh, but there are parts of the world where there's not so many uh, media campaigns, uh, but what we see is that people often give to their local communities or to the church or um, to local purposes. So it might be the case that in some countries it's, it's it's easier to do than than in those countries with a, a strong fundraising culture. I don't know yet. We're learning by doing, and that's why we want to pilot. The pilot countries at the moment are India and Canada and uh, Greece and New Zealand, and probably Brazil. Brazil didn't have didn't take a decision yet. So we try to really cover the whole world in, in different perspectives and see if we can if we can create this campaign in, in different parts of the world in the first stage and then take it to other countries as well after that. But I think um, there are so many people affected by the disease, not only those who have the disease, but their families as well. Hundreds of millions of people worldwide I think if we appeal to only to them, that can be successful. But it's better if it appeals to the whole, to the general public. Well, I, Even the, the people who are affected is already a large group of people worldwide. Well, I think that's fantastic, the approach that you're taking with it, because I, I, it definitely needs to be done. Um, I... I personally feel, you know, pulling together as the one, we're going to make uh, a larger force and be recognized. Uh, I see just from from the Internet really a grassroots effort um, emerging of people wanting to collaborate, wanting to share. And that isn't necessarily so much um, from an organizational standpoint, but from the people's voice talking saying, you know, we want to share what is working and what isn't um, in the world. Can you give us uh, any insight as to the type of campaign that you're going to be launching, or is that still in formation, um, or is that just kind of a top secret thing, or is it going to be more, you know, TV and advertising, or is it something a little bit different than that? Well, I think it will be multimedia, so we, we want to use all the media, but it will very much depend on the the cultural appropriateness, uh, which media we use in which country. Um, there are countries that are very well doing in direct mail, for instance, so let us, other countries not at all. I think TV is, is important every year, but of course TV is the most expensive, um, and we don't have much resources, so we have to be very creative and try and get as much for free as we can. I think the internet will be uh, very, very crucial. So as you said, there are lots of 
grassroots groups, there are lots of people active themselves, and we need to, to try and engage with them, and if, maybe even develop um, a campaign model where people can join online and create their own group and be part of it. But we haven't worked on that yet. We we just want to. We're just working on the on the message now and on some visual and creative. And we hope to have that ready by March next year, and then start to do some tryouts, to do some testing. So it will take some time before we get there. But I think it's a it's a very important effort, and uh, which needs to which needs which needs a long term approach. Now, are you looking with your campaign in terms of doing anything with, um, you know, one of the things I struggle with and that I I see others struggle with is um, we use different voices from professionals to family members um, to people with the disease. And is that something that you're going to be looking at really kind of joining in as one voice for all the levels um, from from academia to medical? Just in general, we don't do anything without the people with the disease. So people with Alzheimer's and dementia are involved in all our activities. There is a person with dementia on our board of ADI. And in all the, if we have a conference committee, we try to find someone who can be part of that. Sometimes it's not easy, but on the other hand, you might be surprised how many People with dementia want to do some things, who want to be part of the movement. Um, so this will certainly happen with this campaign. Um, we want to be very inclusive, and you can't do this. Do otherwise, if you want to bring people out of the shadows, you have to involve them, of course. And I think they have powerful messages for us, and we're just working on it uh, to see how we can do that. But I'm sure we will. They will be the main carriers of the campaign, and then, of course, the caregivers and then the broader community as well. But we're not not specifically a medical organization as ADI. We're more an organization of, of the families, but there are medical people involved. We need the, the expertise of the specialists in, in different areas that are related to Alzheimer's disease. So we're not aiming primarily at the medical profession, but at the general public. Mark, can you talk to us a little bit about your conference coming up and and let people know about it? I I think it's just a fabulous conference. I I have not attended, but I just hear wonderful things about it, and I know you have one coming up in 2012. Can you please tell the audience um, about your conference? Yeah. Yeah, the conference is every year, and it rotates by from one continent to the other. So we were in Canada last year, uh, uh, this year, 2011. In 2012, we were in London, 2013 in Taiwan, etc., etc. And uh, the London conference is is going to take place from 7 to 10 March. Uh, it's in the area of the city where the Olympics will take place later on. So the two main events in London next year are the ADI conference and the Olympic Games. Well, three, there are also Paralympic Games. Um, but that's a joke. We expect 1,500 to 2,000 people attending. And it's a unique conference in the way that it involves people with dementia, their caregivers, 
medical professionals, researchers, policy officers, and people who work uh, as a staff member or as a volunteer for Alzheimer's associations around the world. And I think there will be people from more than 60 countries attending. So it's a really dynamic uh, event with people from all over the world. And in the program we have uh, three streams. One is uh, the scientific stream, so with mostly medical topics. Then there is an important care stream in the program, all about professional care, but also home care and informal care. And finally, uh, some policy issues and some issues around the disease that we want to, to highlight. So, for instance, how is Alzheimer's perceived in the media? How do we talk about it? And what does that do? Is that, is that the right way or do we need different approaches? But also, what is happening on the policy level? So, which countries are making national Alzheimer plans? What's in the plans? Does that really give, give improvements? And what can others learn from it? So yeah, it's a it's a very exciting event. It's it's a lot of work. Uh, we usually start three to four years in advance uh, planning for a conference, but the last year is of course the main focus. Then you have to put a program together. And people who are attending can can send us uh, a small summary of what they want to present if they want to present anything with an oral presentation or a poster. Um, we got a lot of uh, proposals this year, over 450, and uh, we can have 120 people presenting, so the other ones have to decide if they, they want to make a poster of their story, and you can put it in an exhibition area where everyone can see them. Wow, that's a lot of speakers. That's a lot of information. Um, what, what is the theme this year? Uh, the theme is called Science Fact Fiction. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, we want to stimulate debate on uh, on a few areas and uh, and inform people on the on the whole variety of topics that is uh, what is happening around the disease. So, from a scientific point of view, but also from a society point of view. And and what is, what is new in this conference is that. Um, we have so many speakers because we have a, we have a, a few uh, plenary speakers, a few keynotes, where everyone is in the same room and can attend the same session. But we also have a, a parallel program where it's broken into six uh, different sessions, and you can choose whatever topic you want to attend. And one of these uh, parallel sessions all the time will be led by. Uh, people with dementia, and they will also present, and they have selected five topics themselves that, want, that they want to present. And we're looking at people who can attend the conference and make a presentation. But it's very exciting, and it's the first one ever that we've done it this way. It's the first all-time conference ever with such an involvement of people with the disease themselves. I think that's brilliant, Mark. I, I think their voice really needs to be heard, and they have so much insight where, you know, for years we've been guessing and, and we haven't asked the questions of, you know, with people with early onset, what what is it like? How can you help us? I know, 
you know, Richard Taylor's new DVD that he did about the myths and the stigma, I think is just brilliant. And it is it's such a great training tool. Um, people like Rick Phelps, who has um, memory people, um, Norms McNamara, you know, over in, over in the UK, um, their voice is just um, helping so many people. So I, I think it's wonderful that you guys are incorporating that into the core of your conference, um, along with the scientific, along with the caregiver support. Um, that is wonderful. And people can find out about your um, conference again by going to your website, which is www.adi2012.org is what I've got down. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And ADI2012 is just without any dots or other things, which is adi2012.org. Yeah, that's the conference website, and then you can click on the program and on other issues. And, and of course, it's an opportunity um, if you're able to attend uh, to visit London as well a few days more and enjoy the city. Well, I like that idea. I'm going to have to see if I can get that on my schedule because I would love to. I would love to attend and um, be part of your group. I would also like to, you know, be able to um, help promote your campaign and, you know, when you guys roll it out in, in any fashion um, that I can between my resource website, my blog, the radio show, um, and as you you know, forge ahead, please be in contact with me um, and we can try to help um, raise the elevation um, of your campaign as well um, because I'm connected with people all over the world. Even though our radio show has um, not huge numbers right now, it's amazing who's connected to it. And again, um, it's just one of those things where you have to just kind of um, put it in the garden and water it and tend it and hopefully it will grow in time. Is there anything you would like to share, anything more you'd like to share with our audience? Sorry, I can't hear you very well, but I think you said, is there anything else you want to share with the audience? That's correct. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's very nice to be in this program, and I hope you will have more interesting people in the future. Um, I think what is important, the most important thing in the field of Alzheimer's is that it's that people talk about it, that they don't hide it away, um, that they don't try to fix everything themselves. But if you talk to others, if you look for support or if you look for ideas and solutions that others have found, it can really make your life easier. And I've seen that many, many times that many people try to struggle with it and they all try to do it on their own. And then it's, it's a very hard job. So sharing information can be really give people relief and show them that others are in the same position and that sometimes you can learn from experiences of others. I think that's a very important thing and that's so easy nowadays with the with the modern media to share information and to find others to find peers. That's really much easier than it was twenty, thirty years ago. Mark, is there any last-minute words of wisdom you'd like to give to somebody living with the disease? Sorry, I don't hear you, Laura. Is there any last-minute words you'd like to give, um, kind of words of wisdom to somebody living with the disease? Um, you mean that I quote them, or do I have someone there? 
No, no, no. I don't. I don't have a caller. I'm just saying. Is there any um, like words of wisdom that you would like to share with somebody, kind of heartfelt, um, living with the disease um, that you think might might enhance their life? Kind of putting you on the spot. So if you don't have anything, that's okay too. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it's important to make the best out of it and not give up and see what you can do. Although you lost some parts of um, some things you can do with your brain, there's still other things left over that, that I see everywhere in the world that people with dementia can be active, they can they can paint, they can make music, they can have fun with each other. So it's important not to look at everything that's lost only, but also to look at what's still there and use it, keep using it. I agree, and I think in some senses it's almost um, it, this disease helps people enhance their relationships or kin if they choose to go there. Um, because one of the gifts for me that you know this journey with my mom of 30 years, it's allowed me to play again as an adult and not take things so seriously, and just enjoy very simple things, and and that has given me so much peace. Um, and really centered me as a person. So I, I agree. It's it's still stay engaged. You know, don't lose your relationships. Um, and that goes for people who care for these or who have relationships with people with memory loss. Don't give up on somebody. Don't walk away. Um, truly keep them as a part of your life. They were important um, for you to connect with them initially. Don't let that slide away. You might have to do things a little bit differently, um, but that's okay. Nothing stays the same. So, Mark, I thank you so much for all the time you've taken with us today, and I apologize we had some technical difficulties with Skype. We just quite never know when it comes to um, to Skype, but I think it was just amazing the information that you were able to share with people, and I'm so happy that we were able to um, tell people about your organization because I think you're doing some marvelous things. And again, if people are interested in um, in getting more information on Alzheimer's Disease International, just go to www.adi2012.org. That'll get you to the conference, and from there you can get to um, other portions of the website as well. So again, thank you so much for all you're doing, Mark. I look forward to um, hopefully having you on the show again and hearing more updates on your your campaign efforts. Okay. okay. Oh. Nice to be on the show, and I appreciate the time you spent with me and all the things you asked, and I hope uh, people can benefit from the information. Great. And the show will remain in the archives so um, people can listen to it afterwards and push it out uh, via social media and try to help raise awareness for for your organization as well. So, again, thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate um, all you are doing. I'm going to introduce our next guest now, and that is Janice Doherty. And Janice um, is a retired clinical microbiologist and she wove her love for gardening and her tradition um, uh, of healthcare services and founded a company called um, Growing Healthy Inc. in 1995. 
And Jan uh, provided horticultural therapy to nursing homes, Alzheimer's units, um, healthcare facilities, and retirement homes for for 10 years um, before she um, was selling her company. And she now presents programs on that topic at conferences and garden clubs, etc. Um, she has been an avid, um, an av- yeah, I can't talk, an active volunteer. Uh, for 19 years um, in the Cincinnati Flower Show. And she also um, works at the Cincinnati Nature Center um, Herb Wall Restoration Maintenance Project. So I want to welcome Janice aboard. How are you doing today, Janice? I'm just fine. Thank you for having me on. Well, good, good. I'm I'm excited to have you on and hear about your your book, A Calendar Year of Horticulture Therapy, um, which you wrote and published in 2009, and, and that's available on Amazon.com. Um, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, you as a whole. And do you, you know, can you tell our audience, um, have you ever had a connection to Alzheimer's disease or dementia um, personally with family or friends? Um, actually, when I look back, I realize that I did when I was a little girl. But um, And, of course, that was a number of decades ago. <laughs> so, but I had an aunt um, who everybody sort of just said, uh, you know, she had hardening of the arteries, you know, she saw things, she didn't understand things, and and it was just let go with that. So I, you know, I didn't really have an awful lot of contact with her at that time, but looking back, I now realize, you know, that she did have uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. I'm I'm not really quite sure. Um, And then later on uh, in my life, um, I had another aunt who nobody had ever said anything uh, about the fact that she had Alzheimer's. In fact, it was very hidden uh, by her family. And um, until I had seen her, and I thought, you know, how how different she looked and acted, although she remembered me and she talked to me, I then I realized that, yes, you know, in fact, she does have Alzheimer's. But she, you know, remained at home for the whole time. Um, but those are actually my only two contacts, and neither one of them were, you know, like a an in-home, really um, personal kind of a situation. You know, it was, I, I saw my aunt a few times a year, um, and that was it, you know. Um, so it's interesting to me, you know, how I ended up on the journey taking me into nursing homes and, and Alzheimer's facilities and and feeling very comfortable, very at ease, you know, uh, working, you know, with that population and sharing what I had to offer with them. I think I've lost you. Hello? Let me see. Are you still there? 
Yes, I am. I thought I lost you. <laughs> well, you did. Uh, my, I'm just having all kinds of problems today. Um, one phone died, so now I'm on another one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I, it, I shouldn't say it died. It just it cut off. So, um, anyways, that's what happens sometimes with these things. So, um, I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about, um, you know, how you got into the whole horticultural therapy. What made you decide to? to try this, maybe define, maybe first start out defining what exactly that is um, for um, our listeners. Well, sure. Horticultural therapy um, is a process uh, that utilizes plants and, and horticultural activities uh, to improve the social, the psychological, the cognitive, uh, the physical well-being of the participant. And it is different than being a horticulturist. Um, the horticulturist works with plants using all of those um, methods, but they use it for the benefit of the plant. They take care of the plant's interest. And a horticultural therapy, of course, has the participants, the residents' interest, you know, at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even realize that it was uh, an occupation, uh, a therapy, until uh, I began volunteering at the Cincinnati Flower Show. And uh, the, the first year that I was involved, I, I, requi- I requested to be a volunteer that just played in the dirt. I didn't want to do any of the administrative stuff or the, the pretty stuff. I wanted to you know, help someone plant their garden, their exhibit. And so I was assigned to um, an exhibit that was entitled The Garden of Hope. And it was a garden that that made me realize that there is specific gardening for the blind, for the arthritic, uh, for the deaf, uh, for Alzheimer's patients, uh, for children. I mean, and it was it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience, and I really got into it. And I acted also as a docent for that exhibit during the showtime. And... Uh, I was telling everyone, you know, all the benefits of this garden, and I was very excited about it. And and finally, when my shift uh, time was over, I had a replacement person uh, who was going to take over my job. And so she asked me, what had I been telling the people about this garden? So I went on and on and on about how great this garden was and the whole concept, et cetera. And finally, she looked at me and said, you know, what are you? And I, she said, are you a psychologist or something? And, and I said, no, I was just a volunteer, worked, you know, in a hospital, microbiology. And I said, you know, what was she? Well, she was a horticultural therapist. And that was my very first inkling that this was something that I could be doing. Um, and she sort of mentored me, and she told me if I was ever interested in looking into this that I should contact her. And um, so it took a couple of months before it just it never left my mind. You know, all the while I'm working at the hospital, I'm I'm thinking, you know, I, I just couldn't get this horticultural therapy thing out of my mind, and so I finally called her, and um, she said, you know. In Cincinnati, anyway, uh, there there was very little horticultural therapy knowledge. Uh, it was not used in nursing homes, per se. Um, it was just, you know, west of the Mississippi, it seemed to be much more prevalent. But um, in the Midwest, it was 
there was not much to go on. So she said, you really need to, uh, you know, start a company and, and learn this and, and provide this service. And that's how it all began. And who would have ever thought? <laughs> so yeah. You never know, wow. you know, what a volunteer job's going to lead to. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Now, I have to ask you one question because your voice sounds a little garbled. Are you on speakerphone by chance? Uh, no, I'm not. You're not? Okay. And maybe it's just my end. Maybe no one else is hearing it. I, but it's just because I, I am in the world of technical difficulties today. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But life goes on. Things aren't perfect, and you know we can we continue on, as they say. Well, I could um, change phone if you think it would be better, but I I think this is the better phone that I'm on, actually. So. Well, you you know your phone system, so it 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 could easily just be moi. So I always just like to double double check on that. Can you um, give us kind of a description of? Um, you had mentioned uh, to me earlier when we talked that there were kind of three kinds of, of sessions that you do with people to help them engage. Can you talk about each of those and and why they why they help somebody with dementia and how you know how a caregiver could maybe implement some of those things? Sure. Uh, the three types. One, the one was. Well, I can't really say that I had a favorite, but the three types were a hands-on session. Um, The second type was what I called my garden cart. And the third type was the visual stimulation with uh, slideshows that I put together from photographs uh, of my travels and the flower show and and, um, um, just beautiful tropical flowers, whatever was visually stimulating. So the hands-on session um, was geared to have eight to ten people at the most uh, around my table. And the sessions were an hour in length. And um, the the sessions were broken into a two-part series. Uh, the, The first half was more a show and tell and smell kind of a of a portion and the second half was where you would actually have some activity some project where there would be a hands-on experience so the 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 show and tell and smell for instance if i were uh working um with lavender. Maybe we were going to make lavender sachets that day because, of course, as you know, lavender is a wonderful fragrance uh, for lots of different good, calming reasons. And um, it also has a lot of memories attached to it for an awful lot of of people. And so, okay, I was going to make lavender sachets that day. I took in everything lavender that I could get my hands on, whether it was lavender soap, uh, lavender shampoo, dried lavender, fresh lavender, lavender candles, whatever, lavender bath salts, lavender bath powder, you know, whatever. And There's a lot more would, than we realize. Oh, <laughs> I know. And, and I, when I was actually actively looking for products, I couldn't believe everything that was lavender. You know, lavender baby lotion, lavender, you know, you, on and on. So we would talk about these things, and they would we would pass them around. They would 
smell the different things. They would sometimes, you know, make little jokes about the things. They would reminisce about. I, they remembered, you know, the smell from their grandmother. Their grandmother always smelled like lavender, you know. And so this whole part of it was very stimulating as far as the socialization process. Um, the uh, the the cognitive still skills would come in the second half of the program, but the first half was really a lot of of um, remembrances of uh, talking to each other. I mean, because some of these residents, you know, w w really wouldn't want to come out of their rooms most of the time, but they always seemed to come, you know, to this particular program. I think everyone could identify with a garden somewhere in their life, whether it was their mother's or grandmother's, their own, whatever. Something would register. So then the second half of that program, um, we would you know, do the lavender sachet. And so uh, I would give them a piece of um, netting or whatever uh, I was going to use, you know, for the basis of it, and then we'd pass out, for instance, the the uh, the lavender, the fresh lavender to smell, and the dried lavender to strip off of the stems. So, in their um, process of stripping the dried lavender from the stems, uh, this was a very eye-hand coordination. It was a very um, small muscle development kind of of an exercise, and it also um, I found seemed to help with the again the socialization if the person next to someone couldn't manipulate uh whatever we were doing uh one person at the table would always say oh I'll do that you know let me help you with that um there was never a spirit of competition or anything like that it was it was just a very good socializing helpful cognitive uh one hour uh the the cognitive skills were you know stimulated by their having to follow one direction at a time and so you know when that we were finished then they had this tremendous feeling of of self esteem and uh they would share uh they'd hold up what they made you know for everybody to see um that kind of a of a project could be used actually in any any functioning level uh program that I was doing uh the higher functioning uh people I would just give more uh folklore more background material more detail you know to the actual show and tell and smell um, but everyone seem to be able to identify with that and contribute in some way. And if they were not able in the lower functioning groups, if they were not able to physically make the project themselves, uh, we I would make a project, they would all help. I would give each one of them maybe a stem of lavender, you know. They would maybe just strip one stem. Um and, and it would be a group project and we would put the lavender sachet at the nurse's station when it was completed. Uh so, you know, almost every project that I used in the Alzheimer's facilities could be uh adapted to the functioning level of that group. Uh there there were just so many uh 
different stories as to how the the responses you know from the different sessions um you know the one alzheimer's uh, lady told me that you know like she said she, her grandmother reminded of her grandmother she always smelled like lavender and um she had said also that when she was little she wanted some lavender um uh cologne you know for a christmas present and uh they didn't have much money and the mom said, you know, well, I you know, I, I don't think that's not a very practical gift. And she said she hoped and hoped and then on Christmas Day she got a pair of shoes instead of the lavender cologne. And she said she just always wanted to smell pretty. And so she was gonna put her lavender sachet, of course, in her drawers, uh, you know, for her uh her blouses and her sweaters and everything, you know, and she was going to smell pretty, you know, at the age of ninety something. And I it just it just warmed my heart, you know, and um you know, I don't know I don't know how many sessions you want me to to describe. I mean, there are so many, you know, from the Alzheimer's population that were just so heartwarming and so I I never would know who benefited more, you know, from that hour, the residents well, or and myself. I think, and I think that's a key point that this is not a one-way deal when you're when you're interacting i don't care who it is if it's with an alzheimer's you know person if it's with someone who's got cancer if it's with your best friend any connection we have is a two-way connection and so many times people think it's a one-way street this caregiving thing or this helping somebody and we always get more i i'm a firm believer we always get more back than what we give oh and that's for sure and it just sounds like a you know a, a fascinating process. I I think um, what's interesting is so many times we get so busy with our tasks of you know all the mundane stuff, the laundry, the groceries, the meals, the medications, and we forget about these fun interactive things that you know if someone's living at home they can still be in the process of helping out with the gardening and what effect they can have and if they have moved. Um, on into um, a community setting, they can still participate in gardening. Um, it just has to be adapted a little bit different. And so for caregivers listening, both professional and family, please keep that in mind, that there are ways to adapt um, to give this normal sense of purpose and accomplishment back to people. Um, and I, I think that's one of the fascinating things about your book is it really, you've done a nice job incorporating, you know, how to do this and why it's important because we forget about all of our senses and how each triggers um, different things for us. So for someone who didn't like to, you know, grew up on the farm and didn't like it there, um, maybe some of these smells, aren't going to be beneficial for them if they, if right. they have memories that, that aren't the best. But if it's a place that they enjoyed, you know, then it's just going to blossom and grow in terms of just getting the hands dirty. You know, we're always so worried about keeping somebody clean and tidy and things. Um, I, I just think it's very, very critical. Well, you know, even... 
That's right. And even the gardening experience actually uh, it didn't have to be, in fact, very, very infrequently did I have an Alzheimer's group that we worked out in their garden um, because they uh, either the weather was bad when I got there, you know, or it was uh, they had done it with uh, with a, another volunteer, you know, like during the course of the week. But gardening, we we made rose gardens uh, that were a collage, and this was for a very low functioning group. And I provided uh, pictures of all kinds of flowers that I had already torn out of magazines and a piece of construction paper. And the cognitive skill to that was that they had to make a choice. Which color paper, construction paper, do you want as your background? Do you want green? Do you want uh, color of the sky? Do you want red? I mean, it was a very simple decision, but it was amazing how how in-depth their uh, decision-making process seemed to be, you know, well, I mean, they really weighed things, you know. So, okay, this was one decision-making thing. They chose a piece of green construction paper. Then I had the flower pictures, you know, spread out on the table, and they would pick at the ones that they liked, and then I would glue them on if that was the functioning level I was working with. And uh, at the end of one of those sessions, um, well, after the flowers and things were all glued on, then I had a choice of stickers for them. Uh, they could have a butterfly sticker, they could have a bee sticker, they could have uh, a spider, you know, whatever, to put in their garden. And uh, there again, that was another choice that they had to make. And um, when the, when the whole session was over, I remember one lady said, now, this is the kind of gardening I like. My hands aren't dirty, and I didn't find any bugs. <laughs> I thought, well, fine. And another lady said, I used all of your rose pictures because my mother had the most beautiful rose garden. You know, it's stuff like that that just makes you... Uh, realize that that you have given them an hour of lovely memories or some kind of a pleasant thought. And it's amazing what actually is the trigger point. I remember I had one session that I used, um, I had starched some old-fashioned doilies, and we were going to, um, I was going to demonstrate a tussie-mussie. And would you believe every single one of those ladies could identify with the little doilies. And they they talked about how their mothers had them on dressers um, and on the backs of chairs. And, you know, and I thought, who would have thought that this doily, you know, would have been the starting point for conversation? You just never knew, you know, what, what was going to be that trigger point. So that was the benefit of the hands-on sessions. Um, the the garden cart that I talked about, uh, that was a one-on-one room visit. And um, I, on the cart, I would have whatever I could bring from out of doors in to share, depending on the season, whether it was pine cones, whether it was acorns, whether it was uh, herbs from my garden, you know, whatever. And again, it was a combination of show and tell and smell. But the thing that was so wonderful about that was that I, I had um, on the top level of my cart a basket filled with flower picks uh, and fresh flowers. 
and uh, they could choose a flower, you know, for their room. And uh, it was stuck in the little water pick, which was stuck in a little styrofoam box that I had uh, covered with wrapping paper. And there again, the decision-making process of which flower they thought was prettiest that day. Um, Mm -hmm. If it was a very low-functioning group and they were not allowed to have uh, the flower in their room, then uh, I would just take the cart around and we would talk about the flowers that were on my cart. And it's amazing how how many garden varieties would would stimulate memories and or the smells, especially carnations and their clove like fragrance, you know, was wonderful. And then maybe I would leave the bouquet of flowers on the nurse's station desk or whatever. But uh so there again, you know, it could be adapted, you know, to the level of of the group. And um one lady ended up rooting her her flower. It was a little impatience that I had taken out of my own yard that time, and and it actually rooted. And um, she was so proud. You know, she was she ended up being uh, the, the star of of her wing because everybody came down to see you know how her plant was doing. So it was just one of those neat things that it was a one-on-one visit and it was colorful and it was fragrant and it made them remember gardens. And, um, of course, in my mind, that's where contentment and peace is found in my garden and obviously in a lot of people's gardens they had the same same experience. Um, The third kind of a session that I provided was the visual stimulation with the slideshow. And uh, there was just nothing more inviting on a cold winter's dreary, bleak day to have a slide presentation of colorful tropical flowers or in the springtime to bring the flower show uh, into their facility with all the pictures that I took. And um, so, you know, everything, though, was geared towards stimulation, whether it was the visual or the cognitive or the the playing in the dirt and being able to care for something and watering something, uh, the the small motor, the small uh, muscles uh, development. Um, It was just one of the most rewarding 10 years of my life, I think. Now, when you you were working with people, did you have... um did you see responses from all stages of the disease, or did you work primarily with certain stages? Um, no, I worked with all stages. I, I did. I had all stages. I had some that were uh, very high-functioning. I mean, I, I sometimes had to wonder why they were even in that unit. Um, you know, they were they were very high-functioning people. And, in fact, the one session that, that was a high-functioning group uh, came um, after nine one one, and we were making a floral flag, and uh, I, I had provided them with a piece of white rectangular uh, craft paper, and uh, had drawn lines on it like the stripes, and blocked out the field of stars. And so we were going to just glue red. Uh, carnation or rose petals, whichever I had out that day, uh, that were fresh on the on every other stripe, and then they'd have the red and white stripes of the flag, and then they could uh, choose the stars, you know, for the 
the field of blue. And uh, this the one woman said that she, you know, just wasn't going to do it. She uh, didn't, she couldn't see, she, she wasn't going to do it. She was just very angry, you know, at her whole situation. And um, it turned out she had macular degeneration, and I told her that I was familiar with it and uh, that I would help her. And so, you know, I would put the glue down. She, I would put the first petal and the last petal in the row of the stripe, and she would fill it in. So she ended up saying, well, you know, maybe she would stay. Maybe she would try. And believe it or not, that very angry woman about 20 minutes into the program uh, was laughing because she had gotten glue on the wrong fingers and some of the rose petals stuck on her fingers. And uh, and she couldn't, of course, see, but she could feel that the rose petals were on all, all ten of her fingers. And so she was laughing. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this very angry woman has become lively. She She's laughing. She's having a good time. Mm-hmm. And when the whole entire flag was finished and everyone in that group had finished theirs and, and they were holding them up and feeling very good, she was the very first one to show hers to the group. And she said, I just want you to see that I did something that I told you I couldn't do. And she started singing America the Beautiful. And all wow. of the people at the table joined her in song. I, I was so filled I could barely say a word. I mean, it was, it was the most awesome experience I've ever had. And, and this was a high-functioning group. Um, on, I, and I did the same thing with a lower-functioning group, but we made one flag uh, mm-hmm. for the, the entire table. And they had a lot of assistance, but they could still smell the roses or they could smell the carnations, and they could still see a finished flag. And, you know, so... Um, Everything, you know, can be adapted, like you said before. You kind of have to think about it, you know, and, and know mm-hmm. which way you're going. And, and you know, there were some groups where I couldn't use dried rose petals because they thought they were potato chips. Well, obviously then, you know, we're not going to do that kind of a project, you know. Mm-hmm. But they can, they can smell the fresh flowers then, you know. So mm-hmm. it, everything was adaptable. Well, and I think again, getting back to the senses with you know the touch and the smell and the textures, all that stuff is so important and triggering, and we just never know what's going to happen. You know, with my mom, um, you know, I, I, I've been on this journey for thirty years with her with memory loss, and so we've gone through a variety of changes. But one thing that I know is n- nothing ever seems to be a permanent. You know, it's it, that's right. And so one day, um, in fact, I did a, a couple of videos. I put them on YouTube to try to help families understand that, you know, if they don't connect today, that doesn't mean that they won't tomorrow, you know, or another day. And so I have two videos on the, the Alzheimer Speaks YouTube and on the blog. One is showing, like on Thanksgiving, where my, my daughter hopped in bed with my mom and she's rubbing her head and she's trying to connect on many levels with her. And it's just not going to happen. <laughs> it's just yeah. She was tired. She's like, leave me alone. You know. And what we saw or what we could have chosen to see was the shell of a body and walk away and say, okay, she's not in there. There's no need for us to come back. 
But as a family, we just say, you know, Grandma's tired, and she just doesn't have the energy right now to interact with us. But that doesn't make us give up. And so the other day I was over there, and, you know, she was connecting, and she was just absolutely hilarious. And I started um, singing to her jingle bells. And first of all, you have to know, I can't sing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get her to, and so she's taught me how to play again and lighten up and not be so critical of myself or others, which has been a true gift. So I'm singing this song, and all of a sudden she starts, I mean, just to giggle really hard. And I said to her, are, are you laughing at my singing? And my mom usually doesn't respond um, to a comment uh, in a logical fashion anymore. And she goes, yep. <laughs> and then we all just burst out laughing. You know, but the song triggered, you know, the uh, right. her reaction to it. And so then, you know, I, then I had a conversation kind of with myself, but I'm a firm believer that she's engaged with it about how my dad used to make fun of my singing. And when we would drive, you know, long drives in the car, I'd be singing in the back seat. And I'll, and I'll never forget, and my dad was not a mean man by any stretch, and people think he is when I say this, but he would say to my mom, make her stop. Make her stop. <laughs> because he just didn't like my voice. And, and you know, and that's that's totally fine. I get it. I, I don't have a good singing voice, but I still enjoy it. And this disease has taught me to not let go of still enjoying the moments. And so with with gardening and the horticulture, you know, think about the people you're interacting with. What did they used to do that they really got enjoyment from? Um, you know, was it arranging a bouquet? Was it actually setting up the garden? Was it, you know, picking the fruit and the vegetables out of it? Those are things that can still be incorporated. That's and, right. again, the, the textures, the sounds, the just the familiarity of all those little things matter so much to a person, and we cannot allow ourselves to be judge and jury of what's going to trigger a memory for them. And that, that was always work? just so evident. Just like you said, you don't know what's going to, to you know, penetrate you know that day. You know, uh, mm-hmm. and like you're singing. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, many times I took just buckets of of fresh flowers uh, that I had mm-hmm. gotten from a wonderful flower source, and I would take them and and I put them in the middle of the table, and I'd give everybody little containers of some kind, and we would make a flower arrangement and um talk about stimulating in just lots of ways you know but aside from the smells you know and the color uh they really tried you know to make a wonderful arrangement and this was mm-hmm. any functioning level i mean anybody they all all knew that they wanted to stick a flower into this container and there was at one time uh i was working with a group and uh it was kind of um uh, it wasn't the highest functioning. Uh, it was kind of middle of the road at this point. And this particular woman uh, had never said anything, had really never participated. She kind of was just sitting there most of the time. But when I put the container in front of her and and gave her the first flower, as I gave everybody one flower, um, 
and then I would go back and give everybody a second flower of their choosing. Uh, she didn't even wait until I gave her the second flower. She just stood up and she just reached right in that bucket of flowers and she just kept pulling them out and, and cutting off the stems with her fingers um, and putting them in, you know, the oasis in this little container. And and before the people had the third flower, her, her whole thing was finished. And it was very well done. And she had never said a word during the whole thing. And I, I looked at her and I said, you know, I, I am really impressed. That is beautiful. I said, obviously, you have done this before. And she just looked at me and she said with a very small smile, um, well, I should be good at this. I used to work with all the altar flowers for 35 years. So, yes, I should be good at this. Can I do another one? And she ended up making four or five containers, you know, in the in the time that it took everybody else to complete their first one. And, and uh, you know, who would have thought that I would have had a woman who worked, you know, with the church for all those years doing their flower arrangements? Um, wow. And after that, she stayed longer than everybody else. Everybody else left, you know, went to their rooms, took their flowers, whatever. She stayed and wanted to know if she could help me clean up. I thought, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, this is absolutely wonderful, you know. So, um, you know, and, and then she started talking, you know, and I thought, flowers must be magic. <laughs> so... Well, how nice. I mean, and and again, it, it brings up the point of gathering the history of a person and how important that can be and how subtle and how overlooked. Uh, many times we, we miss these little things that we could be connecting on because we didn't ask the question or we didn't gather the information or we didn't process the connection between the history and the present. And and, and that's just uh, that's a big, big piece because it's, it's all about getting to their normal and bringing them joy and calmness. And so many times we can deliver that in a fashion um, that we just never thought of because we, we have to think outside the box. We have to, you know, we have to crawl into their world and say, what will make them happy, what will give them peace, what will bring them joy. And a simple thing, like a flower, really isn't that that much. Um, So even if somebody is visiting, in terms of a lot of times people will bring flowers, um, do you just bring them, put them in a vase, and and stick them someplace, or do you really have a conversation about the color? That's right. Yeah. It's a conversation about the flower. Do you like it? Is this your favorite color? Do you like yeah. the smell? Did you ever grow yeah. this flower? You know. Yep. Very yeah. interactive. What, what, yeah, and we don't um I, I and I mean I'm guilty as charged. I I remember um when I, I used to always feel like I had to bring mom gifts every time I visited, you know, and, and I, I was there all the time, but I mean it was just was always bringing something, and, and I would bring it, and then I, you know, if it was a present, we'd open it up, but, you know, because when she wasn't able to do that anymore, but I didn't engage the conversation as much as I know I could have now. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that conversation can appear to be one-sided, um, but you just don't know when, you know, when you've got somebody in later stages 
when you're going to get a reaction or what that reaction is going to be. It could be um, a raise of the eyebrow or a smile or a glint in the eye, um, you know, or a tap of the hand, or it might be a word or a sentence. It depends on who you're dealing with. It might be someone grabbing your hand and bringing you to another part of the room because they want to show you something, you know, See what's triggering them and and follow their lead because they are trying to communicate with us. I'm a firm believer that they are taking everything in around them, and I know that there are people that would argue that point, but I've just seen it too many times, not just with my mom but with so many um, different people where there is a connection. Um, but like the rest of us, if they're not interested, they're going to be bored. And so That's right. it's, up to, it's up to us to figure out what is engaging for them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how the book is formatted and, and would this be helpful to somebody at home or a, or a professional caregiver um, in terms of what they would get from the book? Uh, the book was actually written at the request of activities directors in the different facilities that I visited because they knew the importance, they could see the results of horticultural therapy and they were afraid that, you know, what if someday I couldn't come any longer, what if I moved and they'd have nothing and they needed something to be able to carry on, you know, what I had started. So the book is written so that anyone can follow it. You don't have to be a gardener. Um, it's on a, tw- uh, a year format, a month-to-month format. You don't have mm-hmm. to read the whole book to get started. Mm-hmm. Just pick the month you know, that you're going to be working in and find mm-hmm. a project. And there is a, a great deal of background information at the beginning of each month, uh, sort of like a personal essay to start with on what I feel that month has to offer. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, the, the number of projects, there might be two or three or five projects for, for each month. Um, mm-hmm. Each one is very step-by-step uh, oriented. Uh, everything is, this is what you need to have on hand uh, before mm-hmm. you start. This is what how you will follow the steps. If you do it in the order that I've written, then that has eliminated the frustration of somebody jumping ahead and uh, and getting you know all messed up and frustrated, and then the value of the whole program is lost um, if frustration takes over. Um, the book also will tell you at the back of each uh, project uh, the responses that my my uh, patients um, had responded to. It, for that particular session, or if that particular session shouldn't be used at all for a low-functioning group, because the book is written for everything from independent living, assisted living, healthcare to low-functioning Alzheimer's groups. So it's it's a, a book that is very easily adaptable to whatever you need it for. Um, the, the interesting thing is that even though it was written for activities directors and and their facilities, um, I have found that um, homeschool moms are also buying the book because of all the background material, and it's never too early to to 
become have a child become interested in the out of doors and to understand and to have some fun project you know that will draw them outside or be appreciative of weeds along the roadside or you know whatever so homeschool moms are have found it um uh grandparents and and uh parents uh, i've used most I, probably more than half of the projects with my own grandchildren, um, you know, much to their delight and to my delight knowing that they are not plugged in, tuned in to whatever electronic thing they have when they come to visit me. So, uh, and they have have uh, really become to appreciate uh, Mother Nature and, and they will always choose to, to play in my woods and, and explore and find things. Um, so it's for that age group. Um, it's especially good uh, if you are a caregiver uh, to a family member and you want to keep them in their home, you want to keep their interest up, then, you know, pick a project. And and I, I think it's just really important um, that families understand the importance of of stimulation uh, through plants and aromas, um, different sounds, um, and that, you know, they could buy the book and they could do this for their parents at home and and know that they are satisfying some kind of a need. And um, so I guess what it comes down to is I don't know that there is anybody who couldn't benefit from it. In fact, even I have friends who who are non-gardeners, and uh, they really, I knew, were not particularly interested, you know, in in doing any of the projects. But it turned out they really enjoyed all the background material because there are recipes in this book for wonderful scented geranium cupcakes and minted teas and and rosemary scent flavored green beans and I mean, so there are recipes because I even we did tea parties sometimes you know with with the different groups if it were allowed and um uh there is just a lot of interesting information and background material and folklore on the various herbs and and plants that I used through all these different sessions so not that I'm biased or anything but I think that everybody could find something uh useful about this book did you ever, um, in in a community, did you ever do any intergenerational activities at all? I would think that would be really interesting. Um, it was. I they, There were um, those kinds of activities, but they were not geared to the horticultural therapy program as such. Um, they they the other the the uh, activities directors would have young kids come in, you know, and, and do uh, Christmas caroling or or do Valentine's Day cards with them, or maybe they would plant in their outdoor uh, container gardens, you know, with the young children. Um, but I was I was never responsible for for activating, you know, that that interaction. Uh, it was through the activities directors and the different schools um, that mm-hmm. had that as, as service projects, which I think was really pretty neat, you know. But uh, I know, you know, I mean, obviously I've, I've taught my grandchildren, you know, how to plant seeds, uh, marigold seeds, 
um, in a mm-hmm. container on our deck, you know, and and I've seen their absolute excitement, you know, when when the seeds germinate and come up and. And uh, my youngest, well, now she's 16. I just can hardly believe that. But when her first little marigolds came up, she was just so excited, and, and she called them merry-go-rounds. And uh, <laughs> so we still talk about, you know, are, are you still planting merry-go-rounds? <laughs> oh, cute. So, cute. you know, lots of benefits for everybody, well, caregivers, well, parents, grandparents alike. Yeah. Now, can you uh, share with us maybe your biggest surprise or compliment that you've heard regarding your therapy or your book? Uh, I think I think I was most pleased when uh, families of the participants um, who either stayed and, and witnessed the program or saw the results in their loved ones, uh, when they would go to the activity directors personally or to the administrator directly and ask mm-hmm. if they couldn't have my program more than once or twice a month because they could see the, the benefits. And mm-hmm. and that that really made me feel that, that I was I was doing something good for people. And to me I not that I was surprised that it was working, but I was surprised that it would be so noticeable at, to family members that would take the time to go to administrations and activity directors and request, you know, a program like that. Okay. Yep. Yep. Well, that's that's pretty cool, um, and that's nice because it it not only um, says that you know it's good for the resident, but it <clears throat> but it's good for those family members. To also understand that because I, I think so many times family and friends feel lost in terms of how to engage and what to do. And so, you know, this horticultural therapy is really leading by example. And it can be done in a group or it can be done, you know, um, just the two of you. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be scary, you know. And, um, you know, whatever happens, happens. There's no... There's no right or wrong. In, and that's in the, the whole thing. That's it. That's right. It, there is nothing right. There is nothing wrong. It's it's whatever happens, you know, however you can make it work. Uh, you know, there were many times, there, like there, uh, many of the Alzheimer's facilities had uh, what they called paradise gardens um, mm-hmm. where the five, you know, particular elements are necessary. Um, the, the canopy, the hill, the water, the, you know, the, the meandering path, et cetera. And I found that many families that were uncomfortable visiting, you know, their relatives in an Alzheimer's unit as such, um, who found that, you know, there was really nothing to say or to talk about and there were, you know, all of the, the, the empty moments where it was sort of like, okay, now what are we going to talk about kind of a thing. If they would take the, those family members out into this garden, you feel like you don't really have to talk in a garden. You can just mm-hmm. enjoy. You can just listen. You can just observe. And if you want to have a comment, fine. But it's not an uncomfortable silence if you sit on a bench in a garden and just be there for that person. And I I thought that was just really one of the more important things about 
uh, a garden that you could uh, a visitor could come and and maybe take that family member out to the garden and and feel comfortable. Mhm. Well, I, I think that's really true. You know, where my mom is at at Maplewood Care Center, um I was on the committee to help um them do some fundraising and they actually they were going to put in a patio and instead we we built a fountain this beautiful waterfall and um and then with the patio around it and the flowers and um it it was amazing i mean Doug the administrator tells me all the time he's like Lori, that changed that changed our whole community because people enjoy it from staff to residents to families um and people are donating money to to build it and you know donate benches and placards and gliding um uh, swings for wheelchairs and just all kinds of things because it's so comfortable and you don't have to talk you know i mean how many of us just like to sit and enjoy nature it's it's an incredible um thing and so i i love your therapy very much can you give our audience i can't believe an hour's almost gone by here can you give our audience um uh, some information on how they would connect with you um what would be the best? Um, probably the best way is uh, through my email address. Um, mm-hmm. And it is J-D-O-H-E-R-T-Y-3, the number 3, at cinci, C-I-N-C-I dot R-R dot com. Wonderful. And we ha- we also have... Um, to get the book is on the uh, the main page there at Amazon.com, uh, so people can feel free to get the information there as well. And again, I want to thank you so much for um, taking time to share your horticultural therapy with us and tell us about your your book. And why don't you say the title again one more time for people? It's called A Calendar Year of Horticultural Therapy. How tending to your garden can tend to your soul. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being uh, being part of uh, the Alzheimer's Speaks radio show today. Um, it was very interesting hearing, um, you know, how people can really connect on a different level using using nature. So I encourage them to uh, to connect with you and purchase the book if that's something uh, that their community could use or someone at home uh, knows of a loved one. This would make a great gift for somebody, especially with the holiday season. Um, I want to, um, again, just thank all of our listeners um, once again for partaking in our show today. I apologize that we had some technical difficulties in the first half there, but that happens um, when we're using Skype sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate uh, the time that you've given me to uh, uh, talk about a subject that I'm really quite passionate about. Uh, I, I just think the value of horticultural therapy is tremendous. Uh, for all populations. So thank you. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Well, great. Well, we'll have you back again another time, maybe in the summertime we can we can talk some more. Um, I want to tell people about uh, our future show. On the 20th, um, we are going to have the author who wrote Walking in Their Shoes, um, Michael um, Krathmer, and he is just going to be loaded with all kinds of great 
practical information. Um, and then on the 27th, we have somebody talking about dance music, uh, dance movement. We're going to have uh, somebody else coming on on the uh, in January regarding a medical uh, concierge and house calls. So we've got some really neat programs coming up. If you wouldn't mind helping us spread the word about um, the program by just liking us or helping uh, tweet uh, to get to get the word out about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, we would appreciate your help very much. And then if you're listening and think you might have a story to tell or share with our audience, please feel free to email me at lori, L-O-R-I, at alzheimersspeaks.com. And I would be glad to um, discuss with you. Again, we interview people who have memory loss. We interview family caregivers as well as professional caregivers and businesses and people who are advocates. If you have an idea of a topic that you would like to hear um, or maybe want to suggest somebody else, I would also love to hear that. So in the meantime, as always, um, focus on the three simple things to remember when you're interacting with someone with memory loss. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And if you want to get that um, memory chip, um, you can just go to the Alzheimer Speaks resource website or you can go to our YouTube channel. It will explain it a little bit more there too. Until the next time, thanks for listening and God bless and think ahead to go ahead. We'll catch you all soon. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>